TED Audio Collective. This is ZigZag, the podcast about changing the course of capitalism, journalism, and women's lives. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and our second season officially kicks off on October 11th, but we are very glad you're here because we have a special episode this week. Why? Well, because the blockchain experiment that we have been part of, that we've been documenting all through season one, Civil, is actually open for business. The Civil tokens finally went on sale. So, uh, with that... Uh, the civil token sale is open. Yeah, we're going to go behind the scenes at this attempt to use cryptocurrency to save journalism. We're also going to talk about all the PR that this show has gotten recently and what that means for our business. Is it all good? And uh, Jen and I are also going to talk about men, men in public radio in particular, attempting to come back from banishment after the Me Too movement. Jim Poyant, my co-founder, and I will be back in a sec. Happy Token Day, Jen. Happy Token Day, Manoush. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's be, and not that we're ever not transparent, but in that spirit, Today is Tuesday, September 18th, 2018, and this is the day that the cryptocurrency called Civil has gone on sale. And um, if you have no idea what we're talking about, that's okay. PBS NewsHour Weekend did a really great feature on Civil. It only took us 12 episodes to explain how Civil works, <laughs> and they did it in eight minutes pretty well, I think. I mean, granted, without the tears and the um, drunkenness, well. but they did a great job. So let's play a clip from the host, Hari Srinivasan, um, describing, like, what's happening with the token sale, because I think he, it's, it's pretty clear. This week, Civil is offering 34 million tokens of its cryptocurrency to the public, which will eventually be traded on exchanges. Just like Bitcoin, the price of each Civil will fluctuate depending on demand. The company is aiming to raise at least $8 million, and Civil is setting an upper limit at $24 million to discourage people from speculating. The money will be used by the Civil Foundation to fund grants to journalism projects. In addition to raising cash, the goal is for the civil token to tie together a community of people creating and supporting journalism in the civil network. We encourage yeah, everyone um, to support. I think, you know, I have to tell you, Jen, I got <laughs> I was diving into our in-mail box this morning and we got an email from Hillary written in all caps saying, um, I love you two being transparent, kick-ass women entrepreneurs who seek to deliver reliable journalism, but because I don't know or care much about civil or tokens, kind of wish that the amount of detail that you've been delivering was a little less. And Hillary, I hear you. I feel like I hear you because you wrote me in all caps, um, but thank you for writing us. <laughs> um, and it's weird, Jen, because for every email that Hillary says, we get 20 emails that say, like, asking about all the gnarly details of this token sale. Mm -hmm. So, Hillary, stand by. We're going to get to other female kick-ass journalism entrepreneurship stuff, but we got to talk token sale because there are a lot of ZigZag listeners who are extremely invested, pun intended, uh, in the details of this. So, Jen, we're going to turn to you, to the Civil Token News Desk, manned by 
womaned by Jen Poyant, um, <laughs> chief crypto correspondent. Uh, what's the latest, Jen? So there are some announcements that came out over the past few days leading up to the sale that I think are important for listeners to know, particularly if you're involved in the actual sale and buying tokens. Civil is extending the sale to October 15th, mm-hmm. which is two weeks longer than they had uh, originally announced. And that's presumably to allow more people to get involved um, so that they can ensure that they're going to reach that $8 million soft cap or like the lowest amount that they're willing to operate with um, and sell these tokens for. So that does give them more time. Okay, but wait, Jen, explain why they've extended the token sale by two weeks. This is going to piss off some of our listeners or a lot of our listeners. It already has. Go ahead. (laughs) So Civil has found a way to accept direct wire transfers with U.S. dollars to buy civil tokens directly. Meaning that you don't have to register with Token Foundry. You don't have to buy ETH. Um, You still have to register with civil. Right. But... uh, To which a lot of people are going to go, what? (laughs) Because they just went through a bunch of hoops to try it out. We've actually already got feedback. Um, Brian wrote us an email that said, Glad to see that Civil added this option. I only wish it had been there six weeks ago before I went through this whole process, opening a Coinbase account and getting a MetaMask account to buy the tokens. Uh, My ETH purchase has already declined in value. And then he just basically says, please be consistent and timely. I think that is very fair. I do too. However, however, okay, (laughs) here we go. Remember, you guys, back at the beginning of season one, when we talked about this idea of using the podcast as a lab? For experimentation. For experimentation. One of the reasons— And ideas. Yes. (laughs) One of the reasons why Civil has come up with this, like, workaround or why they decided to put so many resources behind getting their idea engineers to figure out different ways to make it easier for people to join the experiment is because of your feedback, ZigZag listeners. So actually, I think we achieved in many ways exactly what we set out to do, which was to test new technology to get regular people out in the world trying it, giving real-time feedback, and then the engineers were listening, and they built it back in. Right, so and I, I do that's think— That's cool. And I think they— ZigZag listeners, it's, I'd venture to say— You know, they really are pushing this as a consumer token, and ZigZag listeners are the consumers here. A lot of the consumers. I think a good percentage of the people that are trying this out. That just turned my stomach when you said that, because then it makes me feel like, wow, we have a responsibility. Of course we do. Mm. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. But I, I, I would say this. I completely understand Brian's perspective, and I also would say I can also see the other perspective that, you know, these guys have been working really hard night and day to launch a new thing. Yes. Nobody has tried before. Yeah. Um, and they're trying to make it easier. And that's kind of part of the process of being an early adopter. Yes. I think. I think that's exactly right. So back to the other news, the other announcement this week that 100% of the proceeds of this token sale are going to go straight to the Civil Foundation. Mm-hmm. That's uh, the nonprofit entity that writes grants for the Civil Newsroom. So the newsrooms will write grants. Correct. Yeah, allegedly. Okay, so this is going to, in theory, allow the Civil Foundation to get more good newsrooms onto the platform faster. So what do you think, Jen? Mm -hmm. If the deal is the token sale ends if they hit $24 million, like, that's that. Mm -hmm. And as of this moment, uh, Tuesday, September 18th in the afternoon, we have $90,000 worth of Civil tokens 
have been purchased. Mm-hmm. Um, got any predictions for me? Well, if we're going at that rate, it's going to take a long time. <laughs> Judging by the last token sale on Token Foundry that we kind of watched slowly roll out, it was called Foam. It was a geolocation token. Yeah. That didn't, it didn't have like a massive spike like the day of or the day after. So they did well. They did well. And they they reached their soft cap, but yeah. they didn't reach their hard cap. No, they didn't. So they needed the full time. So if that's the case, you're saying that it's going to go all the way to, I think it's October 15th. Is right. that the last day? Yes. And that's, that is my prediction. I think it will go all the way. I don't think they're going to reach the hard cap. That's my prediction. Okay. Okay, one more thing before uh, we take a quick break. Um, We got a voice memo from our listener, uh, a man named Tom Hawkins, just to put this all in perspective. Hi, Manish and Jen. Uh, I've been listening to ZigZag and really enjoying it. I hope um, you succeed in fixing journalism. It is broken. I've got one question, which is that I have done all of the things which I think are necessary for getting civil tokens, including signing up to MetaMask, Gemini, token foundry pledging and all of that. And now I don't really know what actually I'm supposed to do on Tuesday or from Tuesday. I guess it'll become clear, but I have some Ethereum and I presumably have to buy some uh, civil tokens on Tuesday. Can you just explain exactly what has to happen from that point? Thanks. Bye. Tom, thank you, first of all, for recording a voice memo. Um, And I think that you are a reminder that... You can get people to register for things, to take quizzes, to even buy cryptocurrency. But at the end of the day, if you don't tell them where to go to actually buy the tokens, that's uncivil, really. Yes, it is. And I mean, technically, they would say they definitely have and that they've provided webinars and it's on the Mm -hmm. website and there's a link, but you really have to look. I got to say, you still have to really kind of like dig around to find the right step-by-step process to finally get there and like what happens, how many quizzes you have to take. It's, it's, It's not an easy process. It's not an easy process. And Tom, we salute you for your fortitude. All right. Well, uh, Jen and I are going to be back in a sec. We're going to talk about, um, well, some things that make us feel very uncomfortable. We'll be back in a sec. You're listening to ZigZag. It's me and Jen uh, in David's studio. Hello, Jen. Hello. Um. Before we talk about things that make us supremely uncomfortable, let's talk about something really quite extraordinary that happened to us, which is we are journalists reporting on a platform for journalists, and we've been covered by other journalists quite a bit this week. Hashtag meta. Hashtag frickin' meta. New York Times and PBS. New York Times, PBS NewsHour, Coinbase had a little profile, oh, that's right. <laughs> which actually got a lot of play on Twitter, which is interesting. What was the response to um, us being featured in the New York Times, like in your life? In my life, my f- friends and family and community, everyone was extremely supportive and and what does thrilled. that look like? Like lots of like flurry of emails with lots of exclamation lots marks or of like text what? messages, lots of uh-huh. uh, Instagram messages and DMs and Twitter responses. Uh-huh. You know, the most important is when your family. Of course. Gets excited and, Did you, you know. Did it feel like it was, like, 
legitimate, like legitimizing what you'd been up to. And they were like, oh, Jen, like we're a little worried about her. But then the New York Times kind of puts its seal on a, of approval on it. And you're like, see, I'm not I haven't lost my mind. <laughs> I feel like it should not be that way. But yes, it does feel that way. Yeah. I mean, I think they are still one of the most respected and uh, important media organizations in the world. The failing New York Times. <laughs> yes, the failing New York Times. Um, I think it's funny how as much as my email inbox blew up, my parents' inboxes blew up from their friends. Because if we think the New York Times matters to people our age, right. boy, does it matter to people 60 plus. And I think it was validating for them. Yeah. Can I say one last thing about press coverage of us? Okay, the one that makes me a little bit nervous is uh, Coinbase. So I had a wonderful conversation um, with a reporter. So I should explain what Coinbase is, right? So it's a it's the place where you can buy crypto. They also have some articles where they um, do features on people who are doing things. Um, they called the one with me, The Marriage Between Crypto and Community Journalism, a conversation with Manoush Samarodi, host of the podcast ZigZag, a crypto and blockchain explainer. And I had this wonderful conversation, and they did a beautiful write-up, and it looks great. But I guess it's going to attract a different type of person, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to be people who are into already really into crypto mm -hmm. and who are going to, I don't know, it's like the crypto bros that we talked about in season one that we were really nervous. We're going to, you know, there's a there's a chaos element to the crypto community. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I need to gird myself against some of the things that we've mentioned that we were nervous about during season one but didn't really happen. Mm -hmm. Just like nastiness. Like you're concerned that the trolls will come out because of this? Yeah. You know, women in tech generally bring out trolls. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm a little worried about. But we'll, we'll see. see. <laughs> <laughs> On to another fun topic, Jen. Ugh. I know. I'm sorry. So there were two men in public radio who wrote articles explaining what's happened to them in the months since they were let go from their public radio jobs. So John Gameshi, who's with the CBC in Canada, mm -hmm. um, lots of extremely criminal allegations against him for sexual assault, among other things, sort of wrote an article, which I admit I have not read. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And then the other one is uh, John Hockenberry, who mm -hmm. was a host at WNYC, where Jen and I worked, and actually you worked, on, on the show that he hosted The Takeaway for many years. Yeah, six years. And so he wrote an article that Harper printed that made me cringe because he sort of compared himself to Lolita and— Like, uh, literally, he literally compared himself to Lolita. Like, not just the book, the actual character. right. You know what? You and I have struggled about bringing this up because on the one hand, we're like, why give him more air, brain space, etc.? I, I never had any dealings with him, but like, whatever, we're doing our own thing. Why bother talking about this? However, mm -hmm. I do think it is it marks a moment, which is that the Me Too movement has clearly opened a new chapter, which is this idea of the, the perpetrators coming back mm -hmm. and trying to find their place in society. Um you know, we talked a little bit on the show about how the Me Too movement and our experience at WNYC 
uh, inspired us to make this decision. And it was a mu- in a much bigger kind of philosophical decision. But, uh, you know, I did work with him for six years. So him coming out with this this piece is brings up a lot. Can I ask you what it brings up? It's a long, meandering, strange essay. And it brings up um, the process of working as a young, I was a young producer when I first started working with him. Um, And then I kind of wended my way up the ranks of the show over the years to become a senior producer on that show and worked with him very closely. And it brings up, you know, the experience of being a female producer working with with a male host who is considered you know, kind of a genius to be protected. And um, and the piece is, it's deeply upsetting to read. Because I'll say he's that. so clearly not a genius in the no, piece. No, <laughs> it's bad writing. And Gia, I, I will give so much credit, and I just want to thank uh, Gia Tolentina of The New Yorker for, for just noting how bad the writing is in this piece. And, and also Mike Pesca of Slate, they both write, wrote really strong essays and really took the time. First of all, it takes a long time to write, to read his essay, but um, as a former like seven thousand words or something, yeah. And as a former producer who worked with him for a long time, I really sh- grappled with how much time I should even dedicate to both reading it, to thinking about all of the the women that have spoken out against him, to uh, to what my own experiences were on that show as a producer trying to make a show every day and be a serious journalist and be taken seriously. So it's it brings up a lot. Do you believe in redemption? Uh, well, not after reading that essay for him, no. Yeah. Well, because there's no me, there's no apology, there's no taking responsibility, there's none of that. No, it's the opposite of that. Yeah. And can I just say, like, for anybody listening who thinks, like, oh, this is, like, it's not just people in media or women in media. I, the other thing that we get a ton of in our e- email inbox mm-hmm. is women talking about either some specific Me Too instances that they had, or, again, the same the thing that we talked about, which is this idea of wanting to own your work, that you have to prove every choice that you make or that you... I, I don't know how to put it. Or this, not just get... Not just prove, but not be ex- excoriated for it every day. Yeah. We get a lot of stories in our email inbox from women of all industries talking about this idea of having had enough for many reasons and doing their thing. And so that makes me happy. Can I just give an anecdote? And we can can choose to cut this out or not. But sometimes I like to tell the story of how I worked on that show for so long and thought that that was just normal. Oh, that people would act like that? Yeah. And especially as like an experience for a young woman as a journalist, I thought it was normal. I thought you had to put up with it. Which part? constantly questioning my choices, editorial choices, authority, as I moved up the ranks Yeah, at WNYC and at The Takeaway. And then when I finally decided I needed to get off of that show, yeah, and I did have the support to do that and to move on to a different show, I went to work with Brian Lair, who's a, a local host here in New York City, uh, who's also a, um, wonderful a man, person. a wonderful white man. And he... A wonderful com- white man. <laughs> yeah. And I was serving as a acting executive producer for another woman that was on maternity leave. And I'd never had that experience with him. And I remember thinking, wow. This is not normal. <laughs> this It was not normal. Yeah. And I spent the first six years of my professional career thinking it was. Can you tell the other story, though, that really uh, I thought uh, <laughs> it was really funny what you said, how you met someone who works at another uh, media institution here in New York City, a dude who was like, 
after you told him, like, your career story, he was like, huh, I just kept getting promotions. I didn't really do anything that exceptional. I just... <laughs> no, this, and this guy's great. He He's a super sweet guy. And he, he basically said, oh, no, I know it's because I'm a white man that's like six feet tall. And, and uh, they said, what can we do? What can we do to help you keep advancing? He literally said, I was failing up and... That's crazy to me. He's like, I never, didn't, I never had to deal with this stuff. What? That never would have occurred to me. See, I, from my perspective, I'm like, I'm going to work as hard as the next man. But actually, I wasn't working <laughs> as hard. I was working far harder by, than some of the next. I mean, not to say that, like, all that, that's not fair. Like, no, of course I don't not. Know. Of course, lots of, like, men work very hard at work as well. It's not, for me, the, the experience that I'm talking about wasn't about working hard or not working hard. It was about having to deal with a person that bullied so consistently and also harassed people on the show, which took away from our ability to do a good job every day and feel proud of the work that we were doing. Fully proud, like without having, it's so distracting. And then to see him not take responsibility for how challenging that is over many years. It's just exhausting. But here's the thing. He thought it was normal too, Jen. Do you know what I mean? Well, if you go read that essay... Well, I, you're right. You're no, I did. Not. And I did he read did that. Not, he did not think it was normal. Like, he, he thinks he's a genius and he thinks he can do anything he wants. Yeah, it's a little bit... <laughs> okay, I gotta read my favorite... Okay, it's a couple lines from Mike Pesca's piece in Slate. We will link to this, by the way, uh, on our website and in our newsletter. Pesca writes about Hockenberry's piece, it is logoria as apologia. It is the most embarrassing work I have ever read written by someone whose work I once respected. And I've read late Seymour Hirsch. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> Mike you Pesca. Can't Pesca say that? And I've read Seymour Hirsch. Let me tell you, I know from stupid. It's <laughs> <laughs> so good. So, season two, it starts October 11th with a special double episode bringing you exclusive information. Uh, No, it's a report about something really interesting that we're going to tell you about. Um, On October 4th, that's in two weeks, we will have a sneak peek of season two available to ZigZag listeners. You know, you and I have been talking about this, though. I've been saying, like, if you haven't heard ZigZag, go back and binge the first 12 episodes. And you made a very good point the other day. I just thought that's a lot to ask. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> I so was like, what? why don't we just ask people to listen to the first two, and if they're really into it, and share it with someone that they know is would be into it. Yeah. And then if they're if those people are really into the first two, then then yeah, sure, go for it, and bitch. But I I'm, I think the ask should be to to get people to listen to the first two because that way they get to know us, they get to know what we're doing and what what the blockchain is. And then, then they can dive into the other episodes if they want. But I just felt like the ask of binging 12 it's episodes of this series is a little, it's a little much. Yeah, so when you're running your own business, those are the types of things that you have to think of. You have to think about messaging. You have to think about the call to action. Time to go. <laughs> this episode was sort of produced by me and Chen Poyan. <laughs> David Herman is our audio engineer and just such a lovely guy and composer. Um, Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions in partnership with Civil. We are very proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and thank you so much for listening. Wait, I should have told them to subscribe to the newsletter at zigzagpod.com. You just did. There. 
Uh, I want you guys to feel like you can talk openly, so I'm going to turn off my recorder. But do you mind just giving me like a hoot and a holler so I have that?